Hello, I'm Hannah Jenna. And I'm Rachel Johnson, and welcome to Before and After, a body image podcast. We are here to discuss our ideas, perceptions, and beliefs about how we look and how we see others. We'll be looking at research and trends in the world of fitness and nutrition, as well as looking at our own biases related to body image and busting some persistent myths that abound in advertising and on social media. We hope to reach and captivate audiences of all ages and gender. So please help us out by subscribing and sharing. And if you like what you hear, we would very much appreciate you leaving us a review. Happy listening. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. It's episode 33, and we are excited because finally we have lured a man onto the show. <laughs> it took us a while. It took us a long time, actually, over a year. Um, Rachel, I am going to let you take over to make the introduction. All right. Uh, yes, this is a very special episode, um, I think, for that reason, but also for me because um, the, the person we got to be our guest today is my oldest friend in the world and by that she means um, he's not really really no, old i have she's old, just older people who are my friends but um our guest today andre uh we were just discussing this we think we probably met somewhere around the age of 14 or 15 um so i have known him most of my life and definitely my whole adult life i guess um even if we've been in touch sporadically. So it's kind of cool to <laughs> reconnect, um, but also have him on as a guest uh, because he, uh, in his grown-up life and professional life, became something that we all know is very uh, near and dear to Hannah's heart uh, as a topic <laughs> of interest, which is plastic surgery, plastic surgery. <laughs> um, which has come up a lot on the podcast. So uh, I am super excited. We are super excited. And Andre, thank you for joining us. Well, I'm I'm honored that you had any interest in having me on as a fan of the show. I'm glad to be. He might also be fan. our only male listener. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, even I'm sure that's not true. Even our husbands' boyfriends don't listen. So that's also, <laughs> maybe, also true. Maybe we'll increase our male <laughs> listeners from. Or this. they do in secret, and you just don't know yet. Maybe, maybe they should if they want to learn more about us. They, it's it's a good it's a good. There you go. So, kicking off, Andre, Rachel mentioned you are a plastic surgeon. Can you tell us a little bit about, like, your specific sort of area of interest, the kind of work that you do? Yeah, absolutely. So, I, I am a plastic surgeon. Um, I work uh, in Canada, just north of Toronto, and my main area of interest and expertise is in uh, hand and upper extremity reconstruction, peripheral nerve surgery. Um, so one of the many kind of sub groups of plastic surgery. Um, and it is uh, a really big part of plastic surgery that people probably don't recognize simply because they equate plastic surgery with cosmetic surgery, um, which is uh, a classic error with plastic surgery being the, the kind of overall specialty and cosmetic surgery is one of many subspecialties like hand surgery, for example. Um, so while we are all plastic surgeons, not all of us do cosmetic surgery um, and uh, or, or some degree of it at least. So that's that's kind of the background of, of what I do mainly. Um, and then other than other than hand and, and peripheral nerve reconstruction, I do a lot of general plastic surgery, which it would include skin cancer, uh, melanoma and non-melanoma skin cancer. Um, and a bunch of little, like a random things like dog bites and all the things that you don't necessarily think of. Dog bites. 
I didn't think yeah. of that. I think I remember when you were in medical school, um, is, is part of what you do a trick, like trigger fingers? Like sure, that, yeah. I we, remember we, you did like a, a, a rotation or something and you were like fixing been, people's trigger fingers. You've been looking at the publications. Yeah, trigger finger is just a really common problem that millions of people get. And uh, one of the things that I treat, um, it's a, yeah, it's, it's common like carpal tunnel syndrome. It's common like, you know, what is it? osteoarthritis. Like, yeah, like what, it, what exactly is trigger? I mean, carpal tunnel, I think people are familiar with. And I actually have a yeah. friend who just had a surgery to like release that. Um, yeah. But yeah, what's trigger finger? The trigger finger is um, stenosing tendovaginitis is the medical term, but it's basically um, a, a friction problem between your uh, tendons, the tendons that flex your finger and make make them curl into a fist, uh, and the sheath that they they live and travel inside. And they get friction that builds up, and you get a thickening on the tendon, and then it no longer fits properly. And so when you make a fist, you're one or more of your fingers will stay flexed and you have to pop it out into hmm. extension. So it can help with your grip on muscle ups or something. Just lock in. <laughs> yeah. So would you say that like most of your work now is like necessary work? It's not like elective surgeries to look prettier kind of thing. What, well, what percentage good, of I your work is kind of like if this person doesn't have your surgery, they're like, you know, their fingers are jammed up or something like that. Yeah, I mean... I think all the surgeries I do are necessary, um, but you made a very, I like how you said necessary or are they elective because that's a, that's a very relevant term to use because I mean, in the last couple of years in the U S and in Canada, millions of elective surgeries have been canceled because of resource problems mm -hmm. with COVID obviously, but these elective surgeries aren't unnecessary. They're just not immediately life-saving. So, mm -hmm. you know, within the medical community, an elective surgery is anything that's necessary, but that can be done on a, you know, reasonably scheduled time frame. So if you need heart surgery, most of it's elective. Mm -hmm. You know, you're getting, you have heart disease, you've had heart attacks, you need your coronary arteries operated on. That's not typically done emergently, although sometimes it is, unfortunately. It's usually an elective thing. We're going to do your surgery in two weeks. It's critical. It's necessary. Cancer surgery is elective surgery. You know, if you have breast cancer or colon cancer, skin cancer, all of that is elective surgery. And so the mistake is to think that elective means it doesn't have to be done. It just means that it doesn't have to be done emergently. Um, so I think all of this, almost all of the stuff I do is elective. I do a lot of emergency stuff as well. Hand traumas one of the most common reasons for people to visit emergency departments. Um, so a lot of the work I do is emergent, but, but everything would be elective in terms of uh, uh, being necessary medically. The only thing that wouldn't fall into that category would be the cosmetic stuff. Uh, so what is the term really for that? Like, I think like, th then thank you for the clarification. Like if I, if I decide I want to have a boob job, clearly mm. it's not for any other reason than like looks. A yeah. boob reduction could be for health that, reasons, I mean, the boob but, reduction, yeah. yes, but... Yeah. And it depends where you live, too. So, I mean, it, you know, it, in, in Canada, breast reduction surgery is covered by the government. You don't have to pay for it. Whereas, obviously, breast augmentation, in the traditional sense, a woman wanting to augment the size of her, uh, her breast is something that's cosmetic and would have to be paid for privately by the patient. Whereas, if you're transgendered, and 
you identify as a woman but have male anatomy, the government will pay for you to get a breast augmentation. So it, huh. there's a lot of gray area. The Canadian government, like, that's very, yeah. very so, big difference uh, here. <laughs> yeah, big difference. So there, there are areas where you think that doesn't really make sense. Why could I get a breast augmentation if I decided I identified as a woman paid for by the government, but neither of you could if you decided that you wanted bigger breasts to identify more feminine. As a different kind of woman. So, yes. Different kind of, yeah. So the I think the term you're looking for is cosmetic, mm -hmm. which would indicate that you are choosing to do something not because it's medically indicated, but because you want it. Um, and so that would be um, that would be something that if you are in a you know, a public healthcare system wouldn't be covered. Um, and so anything that you have to pay for outside of this public system typically would fall into that category of being a cosmetic Got procedure. It. I know it because I'm from England and I know that like when I still lived there, there was like a couple of cases of like celebrities would make the news where there was this one sort yeah. of, you know, reality TV star celebrity who she was anorexic, um, so clearly had like not enough body fat to have any kind of like breast tissue. And she claimed that like psychologically that made her feel less of a person and oh. was able to get breast augmentation on the NHS Yeah, because of that. Yeah, so the NHS has a lot of overlap um, with the Canadian system, depending on the province. But um, yeah, I mean, you can see where that argument could be made. Um, you know, you have a a genetically, a biologically female who identifies as a woman and has no breast tissue, um, you know, you could make an argument that she would have the same desires as biologically male who identifies as a woman. They have the same problem. They, they both want breast tissue that they don't have and it's part of their identity as a woman. Huh. Um, so yeah, that's the case, yeah. I was. <laughs> that's actually like, like that's real. That is a really good point. Like, yeah, it's it is kind of exactly the same problem. So why yeah. would one party I'll, get it? And although the other I mean, party it, I feel like what that makes me think of is that there's also medical cases where, um, and I feel a bit ridiculous because the one example, specific example I'm thinking of is from an episode of a TV show, but I think it's still <laughs> real, um, where like someone who is anorexic or bulimic or something and and does something to themselves that then damages an organ, they're not allowed to be on like a transplant list or to take priority because it's something they've they've caused the problem for themselves, right? So like, I don't, huh. like, it's yeah. interesting, right? Like, cause that, that woman, I mean, anorexia obviously becomes a mental, mm -hmm. like, like it's, you know, it's not just choices. It does become an, you know, an actual disorder, but. but I mean, um, if you were just born straight up, with Skinny. like no boobs no, whatsoever, no body fat you percentage kind of have to, to speak of. Yeah. Interesting. I wonder. Huh. Yeah, it's it's way less black and white than people yeah. probably initially think. Um, it becomes a a tricky area to to kind of determine um, if you're if you are in a system that offers medical care as part of what the taxpayers pay for. There are decisions that are not necessarily straightforward and. Not everybody agrees on whether or not things should be covered. Um, and uh, there, yeah, there are definitely some areas where you think it doesn't necessarily make sense to do one and not the other, uh, but it's uh, it's changing. I mean, you know, the the surgeries and, and even just medical, you know, hormonal treatments that are done nowadays 
very different than even a decade ago. Yeah. And so it, it always take politically, it's always, they're always way behind what is, um, you know, medically being done or being considered. And so it takes a while for payment systems to catch up with whether or not they should be, you know, addressing it. And that goes for whether it's private insurance or, you know, single payer healthcare insurance. It's, yeah. It becomes really complicated. That's why there are people whose whole jobs, their whole careers are centered around, you know, what is and isn't medically indicated and, and how do you decide that? Yeah. Um, so maybe knee lifts are on that list. Maybe eventually <laughs> someone will be like, maybe a knee lift. That's, that's yeah. Hannah's, I don't know if you heard that episode of ours well, or yes, not, but of one course. of Hannah's biggest saggy fears knees. is saggy yeah. knees. And there are definitely is, people who get lifts. Is that actually a surgery? Can you actually get a well, knee lift? It would be part of the medial thigh lift. Yeah. So a medial um, thigh lift. Oh, that sounds yeah. quite good. Well, <laughs> Yeah, I'm just trying so to grow I mean, my quads to stretch out the skin. If the quads stay big, then it... Yeah, that's right. You just need to yeah grow into your yeah, knee sack. Grow into that knee sack. Yeah. So, and Hannah is always trying to build knee her games. chicken legs. She needs knee games. Yeah, well, me too. <laughs> I have ballerina legs, so I mean, there's no... There's no working around that. Ballerina legs. Silicone injections. That's that's a wonderful quote, by the way, from, from our first male guest. I have I have ballerina legs. That is true. Yeah. That is yeah. I bet he has a thigh gap. We can be doing this. Oh my gosh. Um <laughs> yeah, so, the thing. I mean you always you want what you don't have, right? Like mm-hmm. you know, you're the biggest struggle for most men who are into fitness is gonna be muscle mass gain. And it's literally the opposite for women doing the same thing. And we think, why is that? And luckily, think? I think that is that has changed, and you guys have talked about that. But it is a funny dichotomy of goals. And that's like, I was I was sort of going to get into this maybe a bit later on, but this seems like a really good place to go there. And I know that like your surgery is not cosmetic specifically, although you know, I've you've no doubt done some cosmetic procedures, yeah, oh, yeah. And trained in it, and you know very familiar with all of that, but like. We we always want, you know, grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. Um, mm. So I did want to ask you, like, for purely cosmetic procedures, whether it's boob jobs, nose jobs, whatever, face lifts, whatever else, you can do all so, so many different things to yourself. It's like, is there any kind of protocol in place, and this probably varies in between countries, to kind of check on a person's sort of mental health prior to just embarking on changing the way they physically look? Absolutely. And it's less of a, depending on country thing, and it's really more of a, uh, you know, what your, what your specialty is and what you're interested in. So, you know, surgeons in Singapore or in Australia are going to be doing something very similar to what we do in Canada or in the US. Um, And it's not just for cosmetic surgery. I mean, people always think, you know, someone comes to you for rhinoplasty, you have to make sure they don't have you know, like body dysmorphic disorder and other variations of that where you are feeding into someone's psychiatric illness by offering them surgical treatments for deformities that really just don't exist um, outside of their own perspective. But we have to do the same thing in, in any intervention or any person that gets an operation. I have to make sure that the person who is seeking treatment is, is seeking First of all, the, the right treatment and is is considering treatment that's going to actually address their issue and not just seeking the the attention around being treated medically. 
Um, and that's a really tricky thing. Like my biggest concern isn't people coming in wanting cosmetic surgery they don't need. It's it's people who have pain who who are searching for help and they think if they get someone to do an operation, they're going to be better. Um, and mm. in the same way, I have to make sure I weed those people out who aren't going to get better or have a low likelihood of getting better or, or a significant risk of being worse if I operate on them. Um, and it's the same thing for someone who does no surgeries for pain and is only doing cosmetic surgeries. Their goal really is to make sure that they are um, understanding what the patient's perception of the problem is and and make sure that they can actually treat that perception and not just um, you know offer the patient something that's not going to either ultimately give them the result that they want or they think they need. Um, but but also feed into any underlying psychiatric illness. So um, I, I think every single patient that gets treated for any condition needs that very subtle, even if it's not overt, but a, a, a certainly a, a an awareness of are we on the same page here? Are we treating a physical condition or are we treating mm -hmm. a, a, a psychiatric issue that is presenting as a physical concern that is for the most part, untreatable, um, and you're going to end up with patients who are unhappy. Um, it gets tricky in the cosmetic end of things because the patient's going to pay for it no matter what. Mm -hmm. um, and if your goal is to earn an income and someone comes in and has a concern that you think you can at least propose a treatment for and you are confident that they're going to pay you, then that's the motivation for some people to do an operation. And whether or not the patient's outcome is good seems to be a secondary concern for some people offering them. And, and that's, that's obviously, uh, that's a big issue. Um, and I think it probably happens more than we would want to believe even. Um, but I think the, the extreme cases, everyone's on the alert for, you know, patients who have had 10 different operations for the same problem, even the most, you know, money hungry surgeon is going to think twice about offering an 11th surgery um, especially if there's been litigation uh, it's something that you have to become pretty good at, at at you know picking up when you're meeting and talking to a patient but i mean what was the, the, what was the, the ex, when we talked about the extreme surgery the, the guy who transformed himself into a tiger or it's like a cat, cat. Yeah. yeah. Like, a had, woman, yeah. Like, like, right, like from a, from a doctor's perspective, like we were talking about that of like, you know, who was the doctor that that did those yeah. surgeries and like made those choices based Probably on... Probably many doctors. Do yeah. no harm, like, you know, being part of the... Well, just as you were oh. speaking, I was thinking of that girl, um, Heidi somebody, she was a reality TV star, I think in the 90s or 2000s probably. And she went Spencer under... Pratt's life? She, she went under the Who's knife... Wife? Spencer Pratt's wife? Yes. yes. She went under the knife for multiple surgeries in one session and just came out and it was a different person. Yeah. She was a t different person. I'm like, is that even safe to be like giving somebody a nose job I mean, and lips and boobs and liposuction yeah. all in one all go? All at once, yeah. But, I mean, that's there's two different issues there. I mean, the easy answer to the second issue is it safe? The answer is no combining multiple surgeries like that is is can be dangerous from just from the actual physiologic standpoint um the the, the 
body fluid loss if you're doing multiple big surgeries is is definitely problematic. Um, probably why Kanye West's mom died. Was it Kanye? Yeah, it was Kanye's who, whose mom died after getting liposuction by like a family doctor. In any case, yeah, that's a big risk. Um, the, the earlier question about, about Heidi's, I don't think she just went in and had a bunch of stuff done all at once. She probably had hundreds of sessions before that, starting off reasonably subtly. Like she had some Botox and probably had some injectable fillers. Her lips got a bit bigger. Her face got a bit plumper. She liked it. It was subtle. It was done well. Fast forward five years later, and for her to get the same feedback, like I'm doing something and I'm looking different and I like that, she's now an extreme version of what she was and she looks like an alien. And then the only way to go forward from that is to be doing something invasive, something surgical. And when we see the, you know, the before and after from five years, you know, anyone who's outside of that experience, yeah. you can't look at that and think she looks good. I mean, it's just not. I mean, the way you described awesome. that, though, I mean, you basically described. It's gradual addiction, steps. Right. Well, well, also like yeah. I mean, addiction where the, hit, exactly the high that yeah. you're getting diminishes exactly. with each return. So you need more yeah. and more and more. So that's like where it really becomes a. Absolutely, like a mental yeah. addiction. I remember when I first around. moved yeah. to California and uh, I was down in near San Diego area and I went to like um, Fashion Village or whatever that shopping place is. Oh, Orange Fashion County Island. Area. Fashion the Island, giant mall. Yes. And yes. like just looking around there, like came from England, spent some time in Rhode Island and then suddenly I was in this place and I was looking around and I was mm. like, what is wrong with everyone here? And there was this one woman, I was in one store her lips were so big, like she couldn't actually close her mouth properly anymore. And they clearly were, and I don't know whether she just had them done because she was yeah. constantly like licking her lips. Her face had so much filler in it. It was almost, you couldn't really identify features yeah. anymore. Yeah. And her Girl skin does. was yeah. so tight, it looked painful. And I was just like, yeah. is she still looking at herself and going, yeah. oh, that looks good? Or is every procedure an attempt to try and like, correct this weird alien face and once i mean like uh, so here's a question yeah. when somebody's like that and they've had enough lip filler that it, they're like giant lips and several nose jobs and taut skin is there any comeback from all of that or is it kind of like no, you, no there really that's isn't how you i mean are. the comeback is hard because as you age you you know those changes are inevitable uh, you know the effects of gravity are unstoppable <laughs> And so something like a facelift can have very impressive short-term changes, but it doesn't freeze you in that period. It's, you know, it sets you back five or 10 years of, let's say, youthfulness. But 10 years later, you still have aged 10 years relative to your surgery. And so there is no end. There's no end point. You know, somebody who's, who has gone through enough procedures to look like that, there's no way to go back from that gracefully. Um, and it's a recent enough phenomenon that we don't, we don't know what people like that are going to look like in their seventies and eighties, because nobody was doing that 20 or 30 years ago. Yeah. It is, it's so recent that it is, um, I mean, we are going to be seeing that as we age, those people will be dealing with all sorts of complications. Um, they're never going to be right. Uh, and that, that's a tough, well, a tough thing. Cause things like, so 
injectables, like I'm thinking of like fillers, right? Like not necessarily Botox, but Botox, your body does eventually metabolize it and then it's gone away and the effects go off. But like with fillers, if you eventually just sort of let them, I don't know what the right word is, is is it your body kind of absorbs them, breaks them down or your lips deflate? Is Are they, you just have droopy skin then? Like as if you were a larger person and you lost a bunch of weight, you might have extra skin? Oh, first of all, let me congratulate you on knowing the difference between injectables and then fillers and Botox, because that is like one of the biggest frustrations. Good job. Rachel. Oh, well, I mean, you know, I've done a little research. I've only people come I haven't in done and quite say as they want Botox handle, but... and what they really want is filler in their lips. And you have to explain to them that filler is a volume substitute, whereas Botox or the other various forms of botulinum toxin is a it's a it's a neurotoxin that paralyzes the muscle temporarily. I you always actually... love it when people also use the proper terminology for Botox. And That's like, so terrible. It is yeah. the most, one of the most deadly substances on earth and we just inject it, it all it over is the most. It is the most neurotoxic substance on earth. Um, and it's also the most expensive substance on earth by weight. Um, oh, wow. I so, did not know that. Like I'm more than like does, but... plutonium and... Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Your face okay. is so More valuable. than gasoline, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so it's um, the, yeah, so to answer your question, the, the, there's definitely a tipping point between doing uh, interventions that are 100% reversible. Botox is literally the best example. It's, it's, it's the cosmetic intervention that I'm most in favor of because the results are really good if they're done properly and they're temporary. If they're done crappy, wait three months and the crappy result is gone. So there there aren't too many things where you can get a very powerful effect that people tend to like and be happy with. The satisfaction rate's very high with Botox if done properly. And if occasionally you get a result that isn't good, um, you just have to wait and it will get better. Go to hiding for a couple Uh, of months and then you're fine. Yeah. So So I do it. And the first time I ever had it done in England, like I didn't really do any research. I just found this nurse who was probably just starting up. And I ended up with like a Jack Nicholson eyebrow. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, oh, that's weird. Yeah. But luckily, you know, two and a half months later and eyebrow was restored. And and you shouldn't have had to wait for that. I mean, you're describing what's called a Spock, Spock eyebrow. And it, it happens because your injector paralyzed your medial brow depressors. So your, your furrow, furrowing muscles. And if they're just treating your, you know, your area between your eyebrows, where your scar is that you talk about. Um, he, they, he really is a listener. Wow. Is. Wow. Then <laughs> you haven't paralyzed your, your lateral brow elevators. So one of the common mistakes is to just paralyze people in their glabella. And then a week or two later, the Botox kicks in and all their medial brow depressors are all uh, are all nicely blocked and even their their medial elevators are blocked but as soon as you try and raise your eyebrows only your lateral brows raise up that is exactly <laughs> what I, I really like. wish our listeners could see what what he's doing yeah. to his face right I'm now very that, glad they can't see the that but, is exactly but all you need, what I look when you like. get your botox you just need a tiny bit to paralyze your lateral brow your frontalis and the lateral brow and you can completely eliminate that so it's just an experience whoever's injecting you just didn't hasn't seen enough people two weeks after to know, whoa, what am I doing? And all it takes is like two more units in the right spot 
and you'll never get that. I now have a much, um, much more sophisticated knowledge of uh, yeah. Injector. I feel like I, I want to go get more too. Like I'm just like, okay. It is I feel, awesome. like, I feel like a doctor I mean, just told me that that is like totally fine. It's, it's <laughs> terrifying. Like when you talk about it and you say it, refer to it as proper term, botulinum like, toxin, how like, horribly yeah. toxic it is. It's kind of terrifying. But you're right. It has, it's if reversal. you get a good injector, yeah, it's great. So, so Andre, have, have you have you ever had Botox yourself? Yes. Yeah. Did you like and it? And it's even worse because I give it to myself. I, so. Well, okay, because like the the woman that we go to here also like she posts on her social media She's sometimes like, her injecting herself. Um, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I, so I you inject you can it, do that on yourself. I don't. Yeah, I don't trust anyone. Well, not that I don't trust anyone to do it. It's just I don't have the time to go and have somebody do it. And obviously, it's cheaper for me. I have it and. Right. Well, now that we know that it's the most expensive like substance on earth, yeah, that's yeah. Really solid. But keep in mind that you're the 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 volume you're using is so tiny, right? right. So it's like a speck of dust costing a hundred bucks. You're like, oh, I've got a hundred bucks, but it's just a speck of dust. So you're like, you know, you you get like a a small gold coin for a hundred bucks, and you think, well, but it's it's just relative to weight that it's the most expensive substance. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that's why you can get a brow lift just with Botox, mm -hmm. called a chemical brow lift. If you properly, you know, paralyze the muscles that depress your brow, you can get a relative brow lift and you can, you can, you know, intentionally take out the lateral brow depressors so that you can give, you know, you can give somebody a nice arched eyebrow just with Botox without any facelift surgery. Um, and if they don't like it, again, three months, four months later, they're they're back to basically their normal muscle function. Yeah, my injector uh, now asked man, that. So I, in about another yeah. week, I'm going to look so youthful. Yeah, oh, it's kicking in. There you go. It's, good. it's still kicking in. And Botox is, it's it's forehead and like crow's feet? Is that where sort of the limitation is? You can Botox any muscle in the body. Right, but I mean, I guess I guess for like, for this cause, but you, but you can't like, it doesn't get the smile lines down here. That's where you need fillers, right? True, and, but we, we, we can Botox smile muscles if, okay. you, if you need to. So for example, one of the, I mean, there's a lot of non-cosmetic uses of Botox that, um, or so there are non-cosmetic uses like spasticity. So kids with spastic limbs, you can Botox the muscles and they get great relief. And that's something you can do oh. forever. Um, and so there's, a, I mean, Botox was invented by, well, invented. The use of Botox medically was first done by an ophthalmologist who was treating blepharospasm, which is like a, a winky, oh, like a, winky, winky eye. Yeah. And so the goal was, you know, paralyze the, the orbicularis muscles so that you're not getting this twitchy eyelid and get through the blepharospasm. And then people obviously immediately went to what else can we paralyze? Right. So <laughs> what else can we uh, paralyze? That is the question. Yeah. So we um, get, I mean, a lot of people with, you know, you see, you've seen people with a Bell's palsy or like a, a hemifacial, you know, you get a smile that, goes up on one side and doesn't move on the other side. And there are amazing surgeries to regain, you know, active muscle smile on the injured side. Great, you know, microsurgery, peripheral, like really cool surgeries to do that. Or you can do a five minute procedure and paralyze the good side and you regain symmetry. So you don't get your original smile back, but you lose the kind of jester like asymmetry, the grimace that people are kind of put off by when you see someone who has a hemifacial paralysis. 
you get rid of that by paralyzing a good size. Yeah, yeah. That's so fascinating. Yeah, so you can paralyze, you know, you know, all any any of the facial muscles. You know, masseter muscle for people that have, you know, problems with jaw grinding and all that. There's all sorts of stuff you can do. But cosmetically, you're right. The the standard areas are forehead and orbicularis. And you said you in addition, obviously, to the surgeries you do, which is primarily hands and other things, do you, but Botox is something you do regularly in your yeah. practice? So Botox obviously is not a surgery. Yeah. So yeah, the, yeah, the, um, the cosmetic stuff that I do would be Botox and any, any removal of, of something from your body that's not covered here by the, by the government of Ontario. So for example, if you have a mole that you don't like, that isn't pre-malignant or malignant, uh, and you have okay. to pay for it. So that's considered cosmetic. So that um, I do tons of that stuff as well. It's not um, Hollywood cosmetic, but it's uh, financial <laughs> cosmetic in terms financial of financial cosmetic. In from the patient's perspective, if they want it gone, they have to pay for it. Uh, yeah. Do you have um, Do you have a, a male clients for that? Very. Um, I mean, I have tons of male patients, but from the Botox standpoint, no. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people okay. do. Um, it's not something that I advertise. It's not something that I um, have tried in any way to grow. Um, my my Botox clientele are mostly people that know me who want it. Um, it's not something that I um, kind of publicly make a big attempt at at offering. Again, I'm not I'm not looking for business. Um, being you know being a plastic surgeon. Uh, where I am is very different than being a plastic surgeon, you know, in, in many large U.S. centers where you have to advertise for patients, you have to offer gimmicks to get people to come and see you, to retain patient. I'm the opposite. I, I'm, we're overwhelmed by volume. And so um, I pick and choose who I see and treat rather than having to try and um, address them. So for me to do, you know, another... 10 Botox patients a week, I would be cutting out something that I already do that I enjoy. So mm-hmm. there is a bit of a, a balance, but, um, but for someone who's, you know, main interest or, or one of the main interests is, is aesthetic. It would be a very, um, a commercial change in business. Like you really would have to be advertising and competing with, yeah. well, Medi spas and all these places, you know, you that, a lot that of Medi spas in Santa Barbara. That is like so common. So like <laughs> everything we, is a medical spa. We kind of launched yeah. into Botox, and I I feel like Botox is probably you know we, we mentioned Heidi earlier and like how she probably started out small and then yeah, got, exactly. I mean Botox is probably sort of the starting point, the foundations of a lot of people's journey in Absolutely. in their process of self change. And so I I wanted to ask you about like. When somebody does go and begin, it's like, I want cosmetic surgery. I want to sort of physically change how I look, whatever that is. Mm-hmm. Is it a part of like the pre-surgical sort of screening that, it, that it's explained to them that this is a process, right? Like you don't just get a facelift and you're done forever. Or, you you know, you don't just get a boob job and then you're set for 50 years. It's like yeah. once you kind of board that train, you're on it and you've got to maintain yeah. that. I don't, I mean, I think you probably express more insight into that than most people that have either had surgery or are considering it. Um, they don't necessarily understand that it's not a one and done. Um, 
And that depends on what it is. I mean, some surgical interventions are very much one time. <laughs> you know, you could have a a reasonably simple nose job, rhinoplasty, and that's it. Like you literally love the result. You may also have, you know, some septal work done and get better breathing. You might feel better and look better and that you never think about it again. Um, and that's awesome. You know, and that's very different than something, for example, like breast augmentation, where you are putting a foreign body into your soft tissues um, that that will over time need to be treated again. I, I think that's probably the biggest fail. People who do breast augmentation surgery may not um, give their patients the proper understanding of this is a temporary thing. You will have these removed at some point. You will have multiple operations because of this one choice. And I, I think a lot of people still, even people who have implants currently don't necessarily realize that they're going to either have an operation for, you know, a complication like capsular contracture um, and need some sort of revision. Um, or they're going to at some point realize I don't want these anymore. Now what? And they need another surgery. And then they're dealing with what Rachel was talking about before, where, you know, you get, if you get volume put in somewhere and then the volume goes away, mm -hmm. what happens to what you've done to the skin? And uh, in most cases, the skin is, is, now stretched, you know, um, it depends a lot on age, obviously, and where you are. But, you know, if you've had a breast augment in your 20s or 30s or 40s, and in your 60s, you decide you want them out, very common. <laughs> that skin's um, not going back, probably. It, it's not going back. Yeah. So so not only are you having your implants removed and, and the capsule removed, so the, the, the fibrous capsule that forms around the breast implant, it's, that's 100% every breast implant surgery, you have a a capsule that is formed around that foreign body. And that's a normal thing. Um, but, but typically when you have to revise that or, or take it out, you're taking the capsule out as well. Um, you then have a bunch of saggy skin um, and you have to do, well, you don't have to do something about that. You can leave it and have a saggy breast. That's, that's normal, but most of these people don't it's want very normal. normal. Um, and so then you have to do a mastopexy. So like a breast lift of some kind, um, which typically involves a lot more visible scarring on the breast than what people thought of earlier. So, you know, you're getting a breast implant surgery and you're getting a tiny scar either around the, the areola or right under the breast in the inframemory fold or in the axilla. So you can get an armpit incision um, or a Canadian ear, nose and throat surgeon who moved to LA, developed a Transumbilical, so you get a cut in your belly button. I've heard of that. Oh, um, the belly button. Ooh. So there are a lot of ways of hiding that scar, but you can't hide what happens down the road, where eventually that implant comes out, and you need to do something with this the skin that's been stretched, um, and that's usually not a subtle uh, operation. You know, a, a breast lift surgery typically involves skin removal, which obviously is you know highly scar intensive, um, which typically looks great if it's covered. Obviously, if you have a, you know, a bra or a, a bathing suit on, the results should be really good, but it's still, you know, a scar on skin, which for most people is a, you know, a big part of what they're considering when they're looking at surgery. So um, it's more, I think your, to answer your question is no, I don't think it's done that well in describing 
the long-term implications of having something like that done. But I just think if you if you have as many people where we live, it being in Santa Barbara, close to LA and stuff, start yeah. having boob jobs at 20 years old. And then it's like, what, is it like around 10 years that they last for? Something like that? 10 I mean, years? I think those numbers don't really, those are not real numbers. Um, there is no age limit for an implant. It could be 50 years, it could be two years. It depends on what happens. Um, so it's not like you have to do something in 10 years or it explodes and you're dead. Um, <laughs> it really just, that 10 year time is probably an average based on some old data about, you know, when most people start having either a complication or, you know, but as you know, being, you know, being average, that means, you know, if somebody has a problem at two years and somebody has a problem at 22 years, you know, you get your 11 year average, right? So it's, it really, it's not a predictable number. Um, but you do know that if you have an implant, it, it's, chances are it's coming out at some point and you're going to have to deal with it. Um, that's, I mean, that's just, that's specific to breast augmentation because you're physically implanting something, you know, whereas, you know, tummy tuck, body lift surgery, you know, you know, body contouring after massive weight loss is a humongous industry. Mm -hmm. I mean, the U S obviously leads the way because nobody's bigger than these Americans who have, you know, six, 700 pound weight loss. It's, it's wild. outrageous in terms of, you know, medically what people can go through, but then they're dealing with dealing with the skin and those people, once they have the scars, I mean, obviously they can get big again, but they won't necessarily need to do anything down the road. Um, so you're, your concern about people not knowing what they're getting into is probably most relevant for breast augmentation. Yeah, that's uh, really interesting. Because they are carrying around a foreign body, two foreign bodies. Because I do feel like um, most of the well, most like silicon calf implants. Well, silicone calf, calf implants and the fake abs might be in the same category. But but it's true. I feel like everyone I know personally that has had um, breast augmentation at some point has either had them removed or had them changed out. Like like folks who did mm. when. Back when like silicone was good, then silicone was bad, then silicone was good again. And like, like, so yeah. it's true. I, I'm not sure I know anyone personally, and I don't know that many people that have done this, but like all the ones I can think of off the top of my head have already had at least a second surgery. And the price yeah. tag on a boob job in Santa Barbara is ten to $12,000. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a big financial commitment. Yeah. Like, and you thought Dory... Pet That's like two expensive. months of rent in Santa Barbara, right? Well, all, yes. Uh, thanks for reminding of this. Yeah, your house is beautiful, by the way, in Peterborough. Thanks. I'm like looking. I'm like, oh, like I look at real estate in other cities too, and I'm like, yeah. wow. Yeah. So, I think this is also like a nice way to lead into we something we talk about or have talked about frequently on the show. From our perspective as females getting into our 40s is the process mm -hmm. of aging, and obviously things like Botox and facelifts and stuff. <laughs> It's, it becomes like something you start clocking at, at this age when you're like, oh, yeah. dang, this this yeah. used to be up here and that bit used to look fresher. And my, <laughs> why are my eyelids covering my eyeballs now? <laughs> so we obviously know what it's like to be females and aging. And like, you know, I've admitted on here before, like I have Botox. I don't Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm loving Andre's girls are, are photo bombing the background. Yes. And it's great. <laughs> <laughs> so like we obviously... You know, I mean, we're, we're sitting here fresh out of the gym, not looking that hot. But like, hey, I think I still think the gym keeps us young. We <laughs> both do things, yeah. take measures to try and like hide the effects of aging. 
what I would love to ask you, because we're all sort of similar age, like early 40s, like... Andre is the oldest here, by the way. I just want everyone to know that. Okay, Rachel. (laughs) (laughs) His birthday was last week and mine is next week. Two weeks. How, like, I feel like the world is slightly kinder to guys in the aging process. Um, But, like, I'm intrigued to ask our first male guest, especially somebody who's sort of involved and connected with the industry of, like, plastic surgery, being youthful, what is the age experience of aging like for a guy when you hit middle age, yeah. quote unquote? Well, I, I mean, I think the, the, the simple answer is it's way easier. Um, I think, and that's purely the societal expectation is so low for guys as they get older um, that there are no, there are, there are no, there's nowhere near the external pressure on men as the, that, that there is on women in terms of aging. I mean, even, even not related to age, the physical appearance expectations are just lower on men. Like you show up and if you don't have a dirty shirt on, you're like, you're doing great. Somehow that's okay <laughs> if you're a guy. The bar I mean, is like, low, that is true. The bar is really low <laughs> and, and, and without going into why that is, it, it's, it's certainly reality. The expectations are way lower for men and I think that is amplified by decade because you know a, a guy that looks half decent in his 50s is like a hit um and if you know if, <laughs> if you he's were, got a job wow yeah he's unstoppable if you're worried, yeah like if you're a you know if you're a divorced guy in your in your 50s who's who's employed and you know isn't physically disabled you you have a very realistic chance of of you know, meeting someone who does not find you disgusting, um, <laughs> right? When you put well, it like that. With that exact, you know, flip side, if you're a woman in your 50s and you're, for whatever reason, you're looking for a, a partner, you're, the the expectations of what you would need to look like to attract someone is ridiculous. Um, and that, and I think that is reflected in how men kind of feel about aging. So, I, I mean, there's definitely a lower... Um, you know, lower concern on a daily basis of do I look older than I feel? Do I look older than I am? Um, do I need to look younger to be respected at work? Um, you know, all the things that kind of play into the, the psyche of aging. Are, are you becoming redundant, right? Like that's, you know, when it comes down to why we even think about aging is because we don't want to time out, right? Like we become we become obsolete as we get older, right? Someone younger and fitter and smarter and more recently trained is more capable and is going to take over our territory and our pack, right? Like that's the whole thing. Eventually the, you know, the, the, the old lion loses his fight and walks off and dies in the desert. So that's kind of the ultimate concern is that you get replaced, right? Um, and, and it has become much easier as a man in our society to not be replaced as you get older. There's somehow value in being an older man. Wisdom, deserved or not, is almost implied if you have gray hair and, you know, have survived into that, those times. But again, I think as a woman, as you're aging, there are more pressures to be, you know, still seen as being relevant. Like you've you know, you've either had your family and don't need to do that anymore. Your kids are 
alive, they've survived, and so they don't need you physically anymore. That whole side of the psychology is so much more complicated for women. And so the physical reminder that you're getting older is intense, right? Like it's just right there every day, every time you look. I got a birthday hat. Oh, yeah. So, There's a birthday hat I mean, coming on. Like, so you, I think for men, it's way easier to just do enough to not feel that they're, you know, that they're worse than they should be. And that's acceptable for them. They find, I don't know, like you can, you can do other things that replace what your physical appearance was in your twenties. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and where I think that's possible for women is just for whatever reason, not as acceptable in society. Um, you know, why should a woman's career in her fifties not be as, you know, laudable as her appearance in her twenties in, you know, in terms of value, it's just such a complicated, twisted part of our, our current society. At least and I think the, the pandemic was like really interesting. We mentioned br- briefly before we started recording, like I was talking about how when George Clooney first started to get gray hair, it was yeah. like a thing of great swooning. Oh, you yeah. Know? Like people like, oh, yeah. he, looks, he looks even and better. Then, like, right. It's like when the pandemic the started to ease up and like all of us who had been like un- unable to get our hair dyed. Well, I, I managed it, but. A lot of people had not been getting their hair dye sort of appeared yeah. and you're like, holy crap. Yeah. A lot of a lot of women Girl. celebrities started posting like half the length of their a hair. Lot of was just that gray. You didn't know were there. Yeah. Yeah. I thought yeah. I mean I there were definitely many of them where I was like, that looks really cool. That you know, and, and women kind of embraced that, but it definitely wasn't quite celebrated the way George Clooney. When do you think you're gonna yeah. embrace your gray hair? You know, I just wish mine would turn all at once. Like, it's hard to, like... I mean, I kind of, I've, I've got a pretty good stripe going down the middle of the top of my head. I don't know why, but like it's, rogue. like, concentrated there. Um, yeah, if I could if I could pull off, like, looking like Rogue from, from the X-Men, that'd be great. Oh, but... you got the reference. I thought that just went... Oh, no, not at all. I mean, that... I think Impressive. everyone, when, when she... But, but, I mean, you know, I guess she got, like, struck by lightning, so that's different. I have no but... clue what you're talking about. <laughs> what? Oh, I didn't watch okay. that. She's, she's right. English. We'll, we'll know, bring her up on the, the Marvel never, yeah. universe. But I was, I was um, thinking about that, this question, like, earlier today. I was like, at what point will, if ever, I just go, whatever, gray hair? Because I got a lot of it. Yeah. But, like, you, it's kind of like it's spurted around. I've got a but lot. I was like, maybe yeah. when the whole lot has turned, I'll just bite the bullet, dye it all gray so it's not like a growing out process. Right. And then start <laughs> experimenting with funky colors because... Oh, I, I love seeing older women w- with, like, purple hair and blue hair and just, like, embracing yeah. that. So, I, I mean, I love that idea. It's, well, it is. Uh, I mean, it's, it, it is easier to then dye your hair a color if it is uniform gray, right? Like, there is yeah. some advantage to not having that pigment. I think probably the better comparison, like, George Clooney going gray is understandable how that was seen as being attractive. I think the more fair comparison for women going gray is men going bald because yes that's fair like and, it or not, that is a huge fear of most men the re the, the real reality is not being afraid of having gray hair it's a, it's being afraid of not having hair because that's a that's where society then identifies a man as being you know, like you're in a different yeah i, I don't want to this to make it sound harsher but you're definitely in a different bracket of physically being identified as being older if you have well and that's different ways of going bald too is like someone like in rich froning in the crossfit world 
is just yeah. losing a bit in the back. The, but yeah, from the good. front, he still has the hair and he still yeah. looks good. Somebody like Prince William went bald in the most old man way possible. Right, even exactly. though he's so much younger. And then yeah. I know another guy who I used to sail with who's kind of like just generally losing hair overall. Mm. So he doesn't have a bald it's like spinning spot, out, but it's yeah. like... You can see yeah. his scalp through his hair. Oh, and then you have, I mean, like, I, my, my all-time favorite, I always love referencing, right? Jason Statham mm. also started, but, like, he just, he, he was one of the first ones I remember that was, like, he just shaves it all. So it's, like, yeah. he, like, made bald-headed men sexy, at least in my world. But Some guys can um, pull that off and look really some, yeah, good. Yeah, some guys can. Yeah. But you're right. That really is, like, I know this is always, I never know if it's super accurate but people often reference the fact that when polled about their deepest fears men will often rate baldness over death oh (laughs) i mean that could be like an urban legend but like that's like a statistic people often say um and oh my goodness that's cute (laughs) got a little (laughs) little fake fur baby uh, has been given to andre there but but yeah so i do feel like you're right that is probably the comparison that makes the most sense because it really is a fear men Men yeah. really do feel strongly about Do you about think that. in the future there will be some kind of... I mean, I know there's, like, pills and potions that men can take, and there's obviously, like, hair implants. Yeah. Do you think there will be, in the future, a way to kind of, like, I don't know, modify your genetic code or something, take a pill, and Probably. you'll never lose your hair? Yeah, I mean, so gene therapy would be the extreme version, right? I mean, the the reality with gene therapy is that it it is so close but so far. Um, like, it's been a thing, like... One year from now, we're going to be able to cure X, Y, Z genetic disease because of gene therapy. And that was 20 years ago. And it's still science fiction in terms of what's actually practical and and, and what can be done. Um, so I think that's probably not a realistic within our lifetime scenario. But certainly the all the other options have come a long way, right? Like it's it like anything that has a um an economic driver <laughs> the the um the motivation for innovating products is is there a market for it and there's no question that there's a huge market for um you know aging related products and for men it would be for sure hair is the first top 10 even in, even in front of like, uh, you know, you know, if, if you had a bald guy who was overweight by, you know, a hundred pounds and gave them the option for sure, they would choose to get their hair back and stay overweight. Um, so it would be like the, it would be really high up on, on, you know, um, financial motivators for men. So I think that that alone will make it an ongoing progress. I mean, there are Hmm. now most, medical treatment of of hair loss in men is is pharmacologic so pills so you have you have five alpha um hydrogenase it's been a little while since i brushed up on my my uh my hormone modulars but there there are there are selective modifiers of of uh, five alpha testosterone that will um potentially reverse, but certainly slow male pattern, pattern baldness. And then there are topical treatments that have been around for a while, but the combination of those is probably the mainstay of treatment. And then the surgery, um, and the surgery has a bad rap for sure. Like plugs. I was going to say, yeah, explain what the surgery is. Cause I just people, think of I plugs. Mean, so it's like anything, like if you can, 
if you can spot the surgery from, you know, conversational distance, um, you know, people will be criticizing, you know, the results. Oh, yeah, you know, you can see that. But most, um, you know, micro transplantation that's done now is is quite good, um, albeit very expensive, of course, but it, it is pretty good at transferring hair from areas of the head, typically the, you know, like the, the low neckline where nobody loses hair um, into wherever areas that you are, are losing it um, and done serially. So over time, you know, bit by bit, it, it makes the, the donor site less obvious and it makes the, you know, recipient hairline as it slowly becomes more and more youthful. Um, it makes it less of an obvious thing. And uh, it's not just like, you know, one day the guy is bald and two weeks later he comes back and has like a bunch of, scabby <laughs> hair islands and everyone is you know, does like it that very last 80s. is that like a permanent thing or would you need to is it that's yeah. something that you have to keep redoing oh no it's permanent yeah yeah permanent hair transplantation yeah, like unless you know you're you're transplanting hair follicles that are not sensitive to the testosterone and so they're not they don't become useless over time and and die off so you're it is a permanent transfer interesting um, it's so fascinating. Yeah, just like to me, we the can amount, transfer hair for eyebrows and stuff like that. The amount of like um, energy and money that goes into men keeping hair on their head, and then the absolutely. amount of energy and money spent by women on removing hair from pretty much yeah. every other part of their body other than their head. <laughs> it is yeah. very weird, and it's yeah. just like thinking about like when you said earlier about we have no idea what people like who are doing stuff to their face are going to look like when they're old 30 years what yeah. are people going to look like in 200 years if we're still here if, if we keep putting money and energy yeah. into all of these yeah, exactly. changes like, like yeah. are we just all going to go like... to our graves looking like we're teenagers yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. we're all benjamin well, yeah, button or like... is, yeah that would be ideal right like that would be the the ideal scenario would be able to halt halt aging and so that you're not making people look younger you're preventing them from ever looking older um that's the that's the real answer right like don't don't try and get the rust off a car and patch up the metal and repaint it just never let it get rusty ever and it looks like a showroom car right. forever well i that's think that's why bo weird. that's why botox is so yeah. popular younger and younger because it's like Perhaps, this is yeah. preventative it's not exactly it can reverse some things if you do it later on but if you start it early enough you'll just never get like form those wrinkles in the first place Perhaps. um yeah so prevention is definitely better yeah um, so like skin prevention for everyone botox sure but definitely sunscreen and never smoking if you you know if you if you're not a smoker <laughs> we and are, you we failed Hannah. you're really good, <laughs> parts of really our good life at already. protecting yourself from the sun you know, there's, you can't, you can't, you know, obviously genetics is going to be arguably the biggest factor, but given that you can't control your genetics, sunscreen and, and sun damage prevention, we're all screwed, obviously. Um, but kids growing up now who are being well protected from the sun, unlike when we were kids and got blasted and our parents, obviously getting blasted in the sun, um, that will be the biggest, you know, improvement in, in skin over time. I mean, like my girls are the palest humans on earth. Um, and my goal is for them to get into their adult years, never having had a sunburn. Um, and I think back to how many sunburns 
we had as teenagers oh, yeah. at summer camp, I like mean, not even at all worried about yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and I and I don't we weren't even anywhere near the worst. So um, but yeah, if you have white skin uh and you live long enough, you're gonna get some you're gonna get skin cancer. That's just one hundred percent guarantee. Um and and that is on the same spectrum as as skin aging. So anything that we can do to prevent that over time aging wise will also be helping to prevent you know uh uv damage that's causing uh skin yeah. cancers as it well. still so blows double, my mind that anybody <laughs> still smokes cigarettes that's so weird it, i mean it's yeah. so it's expensive amazing. too it's also so expensive now but yes i mean but we did it, it for you're years right it, but yeah and, and the fact that there are still young people who start smoking yeah um it, it is amazing um yeah there's no there's no question that it's it's way more um, way more uncool at least than it used to be but it's not it's not yet uncool enough that people aren't starting it and, yeah. and doing it we haven't it quite gotten rid of it completely um, yeah I, can I can I switch gears a little bit like I, I want it because I there's something else that I mean having having also a, a doctor on the show I want to ask um, so many of the things we've talked about on the podcast um related to, you know, we've brought up experiences we've had with, with doctors, um, some of which have been around, you know, uh, sharing stories like as, as women who, who weightlift and, and are pretty, uh, I guess, related to sort of normal numbers that sometimes women want. We like, we're heavy women. Sometimes you go to dense. doctors, we are dense, we're muscular. Yeah. We go to doctors and they say things like, oh, you're obese. Like, you know, based on yeah. my height to weight ratio, like mm. the the BMR is terrible or body mass index, BMI is just bullshit. Yeah. Um, but one of the other things, you and I, Andre, both kind of started CrossFit, I believe, around the same time as as yeah. not quite middle age, but like definitely older, got into that kind of training and weightlifting. Um, and so that, you know, ever since then, especially, I've always wished that I could find a doctor, like a primary care physician who also trained, because then it's yeah. like I would have this frame of reference um, to be like, yeah, Someone else who also recognizes that for a really strong person, BMI is not the best indication of like your health and wellness yeah. and stuff. I, and I mean, I think, yeah, to I mean, you're the recognizing that BMI is just a screening tool, um, and that it, it is it's a defined tool. It it's accurate to to define someone as obese or super obese based on their BMI, but it becomes inaccurate when you are then going to use that as a reflection of their actual risk. Um, so obviously someone who is very muscular, especially if they're not super tall, which is most CrossFit athletes, right? Like at least the men are kind of 5'9", 5'10", 185, 195. Um, they're, they're pretty dense and, and I mean, and, and probably the women might even be more extreme just because um, the way, I mean, the way the BMI, it's not a linear, like the men and women, the, the BMI, the women's BMI are, is, are probably the most incredibly skewed in terms of what their body looks like versus what people picture yeah. uh, someone who's obese. Um, I, I think most, even, even primary care physicians who don't train, when they see you physically, they might say your BMI is X and that is categorized as obese. 
you are clearly not obese. You are extremely fit and healthy. And that's great. The, the trick would be people who you would want to get away from a physician who thought that that was a problem to be muscular and to have a high BMI, right? Like that would be, so it's just a tool. Um, it's not, it, you know, the tool itself just defines you based on two things, your height and your, your weight. Um, it's not an actual reflection of your risk. Um, you know, if you're, if you're five foot one and you're 250 pounds and you're not an athletic build, that's a reflection of someone who's at risk for a lot of really bad you know, health problems. Um, and so it's uh, it's really only good as a generalized tool, uh, for sure. I've been frowned at for my weight in doctor surgery. I just think it's before. so funny. Yeah, it's so weird. But I mean, because so I was, just, I mean, I'm curious too if like, because I mean, when when I first knew you, your your sports, you were you were a rock climber and yeah. a, like a whitewater kayaker, right? I mean, we were yeah. all on waterfront staff together at camp, and like, so you've always been athletic in my memory. Um, but I'm just curious if like, you know, finding something like CrossFit and, and what kind yeah. of stuff do you now, does it actually also affect how you practice medicine or like, you know, talk to patients about what their, their lives look like? And yeah, I mean, for sure. Um, I mean, yeah, I, you, you, I think your, your memory is accurate. Like I, all of my physical pursuits were, you know, uh, they were not strength sports ever. Um, you know, I never played you know, football or I never played anything that traditionally was associated with weight training. So I literally had never touched a barbell until I was in my thirties and started CrossFit. I had never, and that, I don't, that's probably not that common. I think most people, especially guys that played competitive hockey. I mean, I played hockey, but never at a high enough level where I was doing, you know, off season training where, you know, they're all at the very least they're squatting and deadlift, deadlifting. Um, I never once did that. So for me, it was, a very different mindset to go from athletic pursuits that I was, that I enjoyed. And I, I trained, I trained especially pretty hard in rock climbing, but that's so different from training for fitness. Um, and so it, for me, the biggest eye opener was the, the value of weight bearing um, and, and, and overload the principles of overload, I mean, they've been around for a century more, uh, and I was just totally ignorant about the value of that. Um, and certainly, I mean, I think the medical community that is aware of it is aware of it in spite of their medical training and not because of their medical training. Yeah. Um, and I think the more, the more your specialty lines up with people who have, you know, bone density issues or orthopedics. I mean, we always associate orthopedic surgeons with being big dummies, you know, who are athletic and well, that might be accurate. It also does reflect that there, there's a bit of overlap in the knowledge base, you know, people who are at risk for fractures are often people who have low, you know, bone density. And really the only way to gain bone density when you're older is to lift weight and, you know, old ladies who just walk, can have reasonable fitness, but they don't protect themselves from hip fractures because they have low bone density. And you can literally change that in a year of weightlifting um, and and maintain far safer and healthier bone density just by like squatting. Um, and that for me was something that I learned late in life outside of being a doctor because I had never bothered to, to 
you know, see and, and experience the benefits of, of lifting more than my own body weight. Um, so that was a, that was the biggest thing for me, um, starting late and already being a physician, um, being aware of fitness, obviously fitness and health are pretty indistinguishable, but, but specifically lifting weights as being a very important part of human physiology and one that we do not do enough, especially as we age. Um, but you still didn't love 20, 22.2. You didn't love the deadlifts last week. Oh, I'm a bad deadlifter. I mean, for me, <laughs> me I mean, so like, I'm just not built to deadlift. Like I'm reasonably, I mean, I'm not tall, but, but compared to my weight, I'm tall. Like, um, I'm not, uh, you know, I don't have enough mass. Like the, if you want to kill me in a workout, give me the assault bike and deadlifts and I'll just be floundering the whole time. Um, I don't have the mass to move a lot of weight. Like my max deadlift is like 360 something. Um, whereas like guy beside me could be hundred pounds more than that easily. Um, so it's a big, it's a definitely a weakness for me. So yeah, 22.2. Yeah, it was hard. I mean, for me, it was just like a bunch of unbroken burpees being fine. And then doing a bunch of singles. Like, did, did you do so, the third one already? No, I haven't done it yet. I have not done it. Um, I mean, because pull-ups, I, mean, pull I feel like you that, yeah, that'd be your jam. I mean, it's a workout that part of it is my totally my wheelhouse. Um, it's like one of those ones, if I could do it as a partner workout with someone who loves thrusters, I could do the, you know, the pull-ups and the chest to bar and the, uh, the bar muscle-ups unbroken. But then give me the thrusters and it's going to be like, Thrust like 135 pound thrusters for me is like I can do maybe two of them and then have to stop. Like that would have taken me so long to even. I feel like each each CrossFit Open workout, I I could identify the perfect partner to do. Yeah, it. exactly. We all feel that way. It's like because I love thrusters. Like for me, 22.3. I was so upset that the muscle ups came before the third thruster yeah. bar because like the third thruster bar would still feel light to me. But I can't, I can't get 15 muscle-ups. What was the third one for one. the women, 115? Or... It was 85. It was only it was 85. Pathetic. The women's weights were 65, 75, 85. I don't know why they were so low. I, I would have expected 65, 85, 105 maybe. Yeah. But, yeah. So an 85-pound yeah, thruster bar for 15, like I could probably do that unbroken. <gasps> At the end of the workout? If I hadn't, well, I mean, it should have come after muscle up, so probably not. But after the part of the workout I was able yeah. to complete, yeah. Fresh out the gate, maybe. Anyway, we digress. Well, but, I mean, I, I, wanted him, I wanted to talk about CrossFit, too. Yeah, <laughs> it, yeah I agree. Like, yeah, I, I'm, I definitely would be a good partner for a lot of workouts. Um, I mean, that's why, that's why elite CrossFitters are so interesting is because they really don't have weaknesses now. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, like, watching the games from seven or eight years ago, it's... It's oh, yeah. borderline embarrassing now, but the trajectory now is, is phenomenal. Seeing how the athletes move now comparatively, most of the weightlifting is pretty good now. Um, and their, their holes are just closing up. Yeah. Like, the training your weaknesses, no longer, there's like, not many left to train, but did, it's insane. Are, yeah. are your girls athletic? How old are your girls, by the way? My girls are almost seven and eight turning nine in June. So they're, they're, they're almost nine and seven. They're both, both birthdays are coming up soon. Um, are they athletic? Um, I mean, they, I like, they like to ski clearly. I've seen that. Yeah, on... They both, they, um, they're really different. They're very different. Um, they are on the opposite ends of the spectrum for like physical fear. 
um, and aggressiveness. So my youngest is not afraid of destroying her body. <laughs> and whereas my, my older daughter is very cautious physically. Um, they're both very capable, but one is held more back by her psychology of, you know, physical self-preservation. Oh, so that's like you and me, have You have same. no fear, and I am very cautious. <laughs> in the gym, in the gym. I feel like that is, that is similar. Yeah. Yeah, yeah they're definitely, um, they enjoy physical activity. Um, they haven't yet kind of latched onto a particular sport or anything, and I'm glad about that. Um, they're interested in working out. They have like, you know, both of their parents leave the home to go work out. Um, and so they're aware of that. They still get confused when I go to work. They think I'm going to the gym sometimes, which is a bit weird, but because um, <laughs> like work and workout, I mean, it sounds similar. Um, but um, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that they both will be very interested in being fit and, and physically and active. Weightlifting. But, exactly. Um, Keep that bone density yeah. early on. Yeah, exactly. But it will be interesting to see what happens uh, in terms of their their true like incoming know, doodle. Okay, <laughs> incoming doodle. Oh yeah. Hi. <laughs> well, okay. Thank you for interrupting the end of the podcast, Dora Doodle. She likes to have her say. She was just doing her physical activity. Yeah, she went, she went out for her walk. But I mean, like, is that, whose dog is that? She's my dog. Oh, it's your dog. She is mine. So, if, listeners, the heavy breathing is not Rachel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's really a it's a doodle. Um, well, Andre, I mean, thank you for giving up, a, you know, over an hour of your time. I know this to was chat this was great. I feel like we could have kept talking um, for sure. Yeah, My I mean, pleasure. we can certainly like have you back because I feel like I now have many questions more about. Like, oh yeah, I would be happy to do a part two at some point. We've plastic come up with surgery some, uh, and where it's going and all, all the implications of it all. But yeah, it's been super fascinating to chat to you and to finally have a male guest and get some male perspective on the show. I know. We didn't even cover things like dad bods and different trends, yeah. so we need to... Uh... We, we can go there. We can go <laughs> there. That, that should, yeah, definitely be in 2.0. Yeah, 2.0. There we go. He's coming back. Um, as ever, <laughs> thank you guys so much for listening. I hope you find this one fascinating. Let us know if you want more guests of the male variety on the show. It's been a great, great chat today. And uh, part two will come up at some point in the future. Thanks for listening.